Last week, Pastor Brandon took us through the first half of this incredible chapter. And I was telling him later that I was so glad that it was him who was preaching instead of me. Because I don't think I could have done it as good as he did. Because let me tell you, that was not an easy task. In passages like these, there are so many controversial details and nuances. And don't get me wrong, those kinds of things are important to talk about and discuss and think about. Every detail in the Bible is important. But on the flip side, it can be real easy to get so lost in the weeds of things that you miss the forest for the trees. Last week, Pastor Brendan did a great job of focusing us squarely on the main point. And if I could summarize that main point for you all, it'd be this. When Christ comes back, you'll know. When Christ comes back, you'll know. When the end comes, everyone's going to know. It's not going to be a surprise. You're all going to know. So Jesus says, don't turn to some fake savior. They're, They're not the real deal. Wait for the real deal. And Jesus also says, don't be surprised when things get worse, because they're going to. This war and that politician and this law are not the end. They're just birth pains. When the new world is born, when Jesus returns once and for all, it won't be a secret. You're not going to miss it. When Christ comes back, you'll know. But here's the tricky thing, the the big complication that we're going to focus on today. See, you're going to know when Christ returns, but you're not going to know when Christ returns. You follow me? Let me break that down. Christ's return is going to be a world-changing, obvious event, as bright as lightning. But right now, while we're waiting, in the meantime, we don't know the timing, the day or the hour, the year, the century even. We don't know when he's coming back, and that's what we're going to talk about today. What does it mean for us that we don't know the day or the hour? How does not knowing change the way we live today? We're going to start by reading our first section, Matthew 24, verses 36 through 44. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Matthew 24, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven or the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Okay, right out the door, 
Jesus hits us with an incredible statement there in verse 36. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Jesus is talking here about the day, the day of judgment, his second coming. A day so secret that even he, even Jesus in his humanity did not know. Now we could go into the nitty gritty of how there can be something that Jesus doesn't know. And hint, it has to do with the fact that Jesus, God the Son, truly took on a human nature. He truly became a little baby boy who got older and grew in wisdom and stature. And that's super interesting, but that's not the focus of this passage. The focus of this passage, the main point, is revealed by the idea that is repeated three times. Verse 36, concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Verse 42, you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Verse 44, the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You don't know. To drive the point home, Jesus gives us three rapid-fire metaphors. First, Noah. In the days of Noah, Jesus says, everything was just going on like normal. Verse 38, in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, when bam, heavens open up. Water comes down. Everyone is swept away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Picture number two, Jesus says, imagine you're with your coworkers, two men in the field, two women at the mill, two salesmen, two construction workers, two teachers, two doctors, two moms, just working, doing their job when bam, one's taken away, just gone, and the other's left behind. Quick side note, Jesus doesn't actually tell us here which of the two is being saved or judged. Maybe it's a bad thing to be taken away. But again, not the main point. The point is there will be no warning. No one is going to see it coming. No one's going to know when. Last one, number three, a thief. A thief in the night. I don't know much about the world of thievery, but I'm pretty sure it's common practice for burglars to not give advance notice. There's usually no call-ahead service. They won't be texting you, hey, we, we still good for Tuesday? No. The thief in the night comes as a surprise. Catching my drift? Jesus is saying no one, and I mean no one knows when. But, and this is crucial, but that doesn't mean you have to be caught off guard. It doesn't mean you can't be ready when the time comes. Because think about it. If, like Noah, you believed that a flood was coming, what would you do? You'd build an ark, and you put your whole family in it. Or if somehow you got the tip off that somebody was going to rob you someday, you'd be waiting in the living room with a shotgun, or at the very least, you'd install an alarm system, am I right? Jesus says in verse 43 that the master of the house would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. Which brings us to Jesus' main point there in verse 42. Stay awake. 
For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. You don't know when. So stay awake. Stay awake. Be ready. Pretty simple, right? Just stay awake. Except what does Jesus mean? How how do we actually do this? How do we stay awake? Does Jesus mean literally? Am I supposed to like just not sleep forever? Or does staying awake mean being on red alert, prepping our doomsday bunkers with canned goods and generators? Or does Jesus mean we should be constantly concerned? We should be scanning the news for any signs of the end. This embassy moved. That blood moon showed up. Those are good guesses, but we don't have to guess. Jesus is going to show us what he means in the rest of the passage today. In three parables, three stories, Jesus is going to show us what it means to stay awake. He's going to do this by giving us examples of what to do and what not to do, of what it does and does not look like to stay awake. And what we're going to see is that those who are truly awake are the ones who believe the kingdom of God really is coming and who decide to live kingdom lives now. All right, you ready? Parable number one, starting in verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master's delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, so here's the first picture of what it means to stay awake. The owner of the company makes you acting manager while he's on a business trip, but he doesn't tell you how long he's going to be out. Now, if you take care of business, if you make sure everyone gets paid on time, that all the employees under you are treated well, they're scheduled with the right shifts, then when the boss comes back, you'll get a raise and a promotion. But if you figure, hey, while he's gone, I can do whatever I want. I can skim a little bit off the tip jar, take a little bit from the register. I can skip work and get drunk and mistreat the staff. Now, if I do that, what's going to happen? When the boss finally comes back, not only am I going to miss out on a promotion, I'm most definitely going to get fired and probably face some legal action. It's just common sense. But the wicked servant in Jesus' story was not awake. The wicked servant did not take seriously the fact that the master could come back at any time. He said, my master's delayed. And so he took advantage of the situation. He did whatever he wanted to whomever he wanted. He didn't think that the master would be coming back. And the sad thing is that it is so easy to do this ourselves. It is so easy to do what this wicked servant did, to mistreat the other servants, to eat and drink with drunkards, 
to callously participate in injustice and abuse, to revel in every kind of debauchery and perversion. And folks, I'm not just talking about the world out there right now. Unfortunately, all of this applies all too well to the church. I have heard far too many accounts of churches who injure and maim and exploit and abuse and even glorify injustice. I have seen far too many congregations bend God's standard of holiness to match their selfish desires or the pressures of social fashion. And don't for a second believe that we here at the bridge are immune to this kind of failure. It is so, so easy to forget that the master is returning. You tell me I'll be judged for my actions. But where's the judge? What sin has been judged as it should be in this life? Why should I love justice? Why, why should I hold myself accountable? Why pursue holiness? Why? When it's far easier to live however I want right now. Bridge, I'll tell you why. Because Jesus is coming back soon. The master is on his way back. Friends, we don't know the day or the hour, but when he returns, he will come in judgment to take unfaithful servants and cut them in pieces and cast them out with the hypocrites where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that could be us if we don't stay awake. So what does it mean to stay awake? Simply this, our first point, don't take advantage of Christ's absence. Stay faithful. Don't take advantage. Stay faithful. Don't try to work the system to do whatever you want. Don't try to time it out and bet how long Jesus is going to be away. Stay faithful now. Be faithful to do what the master has told us to do. All right, that's parable number one. Staying awake means being faithful. But Jesus has still more to add. As we'll see in parable number two, staying awake also means staying ready for the long haul. Look with me at chapter 25, verse one. And the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Okay, so I'll be honest with you. There's a lot about this that I don't understand. There's a lot about first century Jewish wedding traditions that we just don't know. Here we got 10 virgins, 10 young maidens, essentially bridesmaids, except I think their job has more to do with the groom than with the bride. And the groom is at some kind of pregame party down the road. He's, he's late for his own wedding. Now, at some point, the groom is going to walk over to the main event, okay, the marriage feast. And along the way, these 10 bridesmaids are supposed to meet up with him and escort him all the way to the feast where he can make his grand entrance. Now, all they got to do, their one job is to have their, li- their lamps lighted and ready so they can play their part in the wedding ceremony. The only problem is, Israeli people kind of treat schedules more like suggestions. And the pregame party is running super late. Like, they were supposed to eat hours ago. 
Now, of the 10 bridesmaids, only five were wise enough to prepare for this. Maybe they knew this dude was always running late. But the other five of them were not ready for a delay this long. Verse 6. But at midnight, midnight, guys, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. So it's midnight, and the groom is finally ready to go to dinner. But only the five wise ones have enough oil to get the job done. Only they were prepared for the delay. And because the wait has been this long, they don't have enough for both themselves and the others. So the foolish ones make a mad rush to the store. They go to Walmart, but it's too late. Verse 10. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I don't know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Jesus' command here, watch, therefore, is actually the exact same word in Greek as the one used earlier on, stay awake. Stay awake. But while in the first parable we see Jesus telling us that staying awake means staying faithful, here Jesus wants us to see that staying awake means also staying ready. What does it mean to stay awake? Our second point today. Don't be unprepared for the long wait. Stay ready. Don't be unprepared. Stay ready. Now, the bridesmaids in this story really did have a long wait. Dinner past midnight? I mean, come on, man. Jesus gives us this crazy scenario because we too are in the middle of a long wait. Like the bridesmaids, we are invited to a great wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. But while the bridesmaids in this story waited for hours for the groom to arrive, we, the Church of Christ, have been waiting for centuries, almost 2,000 years. And in that time, many of us have become unprepared. We have not kept our lamps trimmed. We've been making ourselves, we haven't been making ourselves ready for when the groom finally comes. We figure it's been a while now. We, we probably have some time to go. I'll get ready later. I'll, I'll wait till he comes to, you know, get all my stuff together. Except it doesn't really work like that, does it? If you're going to see the dentist, you can't just start flossing two days before. Am I right, Melissa Macy? Good oral hygiene starts now. That's, a, that's for free. It's common sense, but for some reason, we don't think like that when it comes to Christ's return. We think, oh, I got time. I'll start spending time with God once I'm less busy. I'll break the sin habit once this project is over. It's so easy to become complacent. It is so easy to become a spiritual procrastinator. And I speak of, like, as the worst of sinners, guys. I, I'm a terrible procrastinator. I, I, I wait until the last minute to change, to, to 
get my, my stuff together. Being a spiritual procrastinator means showing up for Sunday and, and doing just enough to look good, but to not really be living a kingdom life. To not be ready for when the groom comes back. Bridge, I shouldn't have to tell you that this is a dangerous game. Because when the groom finally arrives, and he will, you might think, oh, I'm good, I'm on the invite list. But if your relationship with God demonstrates that you really don't want anything to do with him, if you are unprepared, not awake, then when that day comes, don't think that you'll be able to borrow your neighbor's faith. Don't bet that you'll have enough time to run to the store and grab some oil. No, on that day, the bridegroom is going to say, I don't know you. Who are you? And you will be stuck outside the door. So bridge, stay awake, stay ready. All right, last parable, verse 14. For it, the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. All right, here's another story about a master and his servants. And from the get-go, I want to clear something up. This parable is not about the kind of skills that you're born with, your talents. Talent, in this parable, is just an ancient unit of money. Now, our modern English word talent actually does come from this parable. And today, when we say talent, we mean ability. But that's not how Jesus is using it here. Now, in Jesus' time, a talent was approximately 20 years' wages. 20 years' wages. That's something like, I don't know, $500,000, give or take. You with me? So the master in this story is a rich dude. This guy is big time. He's an entrepreneur. And he's going away on vacation. But, you know, he still wants to grow his portfolio while he's gone. So he splits up his wealth based upon how much each servant can handle. One of them gets five talents or $2.5 million dollars. Another one's getting two talents, $1 million. And the last one's only getting one talent, but that's still, that's still a lot, guys. $500,000. So the first two servants, they get on the stock market, and they start trading shares, and they're able to double the amount that each of them was given. But the third servant, the one who only got one talent, doesn't do any of that. He, he just says, I'm going to stick it all in a hole in the ground because at least it's going to be safe there. Okay, verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 
And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I I was afraid. And I I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what's yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You, You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to, everyone who has, for to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The first two servants did something of what they were given. They were fruitful in their master's absence. And even though they brought in different amounts, one brought in five, the other brought in two, the master says the same thing to both of them. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Bridge, this is what we strive for. Okay, this is what I want to hear when Jesus comes back. Well done, good and faithful servant. When Christ returns, I want to be among the faithful. I want to have done what the master commanded, to have prepared for his return, to have been fruitful. Because those who are faithful over the little that we are given in this life will be given much more in the life to come. Guys, the Bible tells us that we are going to judge angels. We are going to judge the world. Right now, Jesus wants us to make kingdom investments. Okay, kingdom investments. To make disciples of all nations. To stay on mission and spread the good news. And those who do this will enter into the joy of our master, into everlasting life with him. Now, here's another side note. If we take passages like today's out of context and forget that there's other chapters in Scripture. We might get the wrong idea that we are saved by what we do for God instead of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So Bridge, hear me right. Doing stuff does not get us into the kingdom. Christ alone saves. But on the flip side, if we only look at that side of the picture, we might go to the opposite extreme and get the wrong idea that it doesn't matter what I do in this life. See, the Bible is never afraid to tell us that even though we're not saved by what we do, what we do is still important. Because what we do reveals who we are. If we live kingdom lives, we demonstrate that we are kingdom people. Kingdom people live kingdom lives. And that's the focus of all these parables today. When Jesus comes back, is he going to say, I don't know you? Or is he going to say, 
Well done, good and faithful servant. We can know the answer to this by looking at our lives and asking ourselves, are we more like the good servants or like the wicked one? Are we being fruitful with what we've been given or are we burying our kingdom investments in the ground? Unlike the first two servants, the last servant did not look forward to the joy of his master. Instead, he was afraid of his master. He didn't want to mess up, so he buried his money. But, you know, the master could have done that. That's that's not why he gave all that cash to his servant. The whole point of giving the money to the servant in the first place was so that he could do something with it, so that he could make it grow. Instead, the servant just sits on it, and so he ends up like the foolish bridesmaids or, or the wicked servant from the first parable. And he's cast into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Bridge, don't be like the unproductive servant. This is our last point for today. Don't get off task. Stay fruitful. Don't get off task. Stay fruitful. This is an important call because many believers, many churches today have been driven by fear and have neglected the task that we have all been given. Fear of the world, of what it can do to us, can tempt us to withdraw into our own little Christian bubbles where we're only surrounded by believers, where we're safe from the world, but where we can't produce the fruit that we have been called to produce. But we have been called to go into the world. We cannot forget our mission. We cannot bury our riches in the ground. My prayer for this church, for all of you, Bridge, is that when Christ returns, he will judge that we have been faithful with what little we have been given. My prayer is that we be fruitful. All right, to close, in summary, what does it mean to stay awake? First, don't take advantage of Christ's absence. Don't think you can get away with injustice and drunkenness just because the judge hasn't come yet. He is coming soon. Second, don't be unprepared for the long wait. Don't don't become complacent. Don't put your relationship with God on the back burner. Don't fall into the trap of thinking you got more time. You don't. He is coming soon. And third, don't neglect your task. Don't be so afraid of the end, afraid of the tribulation, afraid of the world that you forget that we have a mission. You got a job right now to proclaim the good news to all nations. No, instead, stay faithful, stay ready, stay fruitful, stay awake. Live lives of justice and holiness and righteousness and obedience. Live kingdom lives now, Bridge. And when the king returns, he will welcome us into the kingdom, into the joy of our master as good and faithful servants. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we receive this word with trepidation. God, we, we realize that oftentimes we are not living kingdom lives now. 
God, we, we pray that when the judge comes, we would be judged faithful, fruitful, ready. And God, we know that we can't do any of that without your help. So God, help us. Help us, God. Help us to be good servants, good bridesmaids. God, to do what we have been called to do. God, to spread your kingdom across this world, to help everyone see what it's like to be in the kingdom, to show them the joy that we have, the joy we have in our master and you. God, until you come back, we ask that you would be with us, that you would give us your strength, your power, God, to do what needs to be done, to not stray off course, but to stay on mission. God, we need your help. Help us to do this. In your son's name, amen.